Welcome to Women in Venture Capital. I'm Rushvina, Chief of Staff at General Catalyst, with prior experience in finance and early stage VC. And I'm Anvita, Senior Product Manager at UiPath with experiences across tech startups and venture capital. Our mission at Women in Venture Capital is simple. Increase the representation of women in the VC industry through awareness and engagement. So join us as we engage with women establishing their presence in the industry. Our guest today is Claude Dijokis. Claude is the Vice President on Volition Capital's Internet and Consumer Investment Team, where she focuses on investments in direct-to-consumer products, tech-enabled services, and marketplaces, with sector interests in beauty and wellness, age tech, and health tech. Claude started her career at media company L2 Inc., later acquired by Gartner. While at L2, Claude partnered on digital strategy initiatives with Fortune 500 companies, ranging from Nike to Estee Lauder companies. Before Volition, she interned during her MBA, MBA summer at Seed Fund Bullish. She holds a BA from Yale in Economics and Environmental Studies and an MBA from Harvard Business School. Thank you so much for joining us today, Claude. We're really happy to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Lovely. Jumping right in, you joined L2 when it was still in its early stages of growth and worked there until it was acquired by Gartner. Can you share some more about your experiences of working at a rapidly growing company? Yes, absolutely. Um, just I'll provide, I'll start by providing a little bit of additional context on L2. Um, you can really think about them as being almost like a productized or more data-driven consulting firm that was really focusing on digital strategy. And it was looking to be disruptive to the more traditional kind of big three consulting firms that you might think of. And as you said, it, it was incredibly high growth. Um, but I don't think we hired our first salesperson until I had been with the company for probably something like two to three years. So I would say without even really being conscious of it, I was kind of learning on the job. And this was really my first job out of college, um, what product led growth looked like, as well as how to really generate in down, excuse me, inbound demand uh, more through smart and scrappy marketing tactics as opposed to kind of more traditional marketing efforts. So um, just to elaborate on that a little bit, I would say from a product perspective, we were really trying to flip the consulting model on its head. Um, instead of like these really big episodic consulting engagements, we were delivering more like an always on consulting as a service type of product. And I think that the subscription model and the disruptive price point really resonated with executives um, who were looking for an alternative to some of these more traditional engagements. I would also say that there was a community aspect that really set apart L2. We did tons of events and programming and networking and opportunities for our clients to get together and really discuss and learn from each other what was working um, from a digital pr strategy perspective, both you know, a, a, among brands who were traditional competitors or across industry. And I think that that was something that folks really valued and, and appreciated as well. So, um, you know, I would say that the combination of, you know, what I believe was a superior product that we were delivering at L2 at a disruptive price point with this disruptive sort of subscription business model, as well as the strong community layer that was wrapping around all of it. Ultimately, it was just a really differentiated product. And I think it really gave me an appreciation of the power of product to drive growth within a startup. Um, then, you know, also from a marketing perspective, as I mentioned, kind of up top, we also, we had to get creative and, and do things a little bit differently because we didn't really have more of a traditional um, outbound Salesforce or marketing team. Um, so just as an, a fun example of that, I think one, one thing that really generated a ton of inbound interest in L2's product 
Um, we would publish these annual rankings of how digitally competent a brand was relative to other competitors in their industry. Um, so just as an example, we might release a report on the digital sophistication of the entire beauty industry. And a brand manager might see, oh, my brand has been ranked number 39 in digital sophistication out of 100 beauty brands. And they're going to really want to understand and you know better understand what is that ranking? What's it all about? Where am I strong? Where am I weak relative to competitors? And inevitably, they would email us for full access to the report. And that was really an opportunity to kind of engage them as a prospective member or client, um, get them on the phone and kind of better better articulate L2 and, and who we were all about. Um, another thing that I would highlight as being really unique about the growth that I experienced while I was at L2 was that we were actually a bootstrap business, again, sort of for my first two to three years there, um, at which point we actually were fortunate enough to partner with General Catalyst and, and raise the Series A round from them. But I, I do want to highlight, I think being bootstrapped is so glamorized in the investment community. Obviously, everyone is looking to find like amazing bootstrap businesses. It's a very different thing to actually live through that period as an employee and internalize the scrappiness that's required to be a part of this bootstrapped story. You know, just, you know, as an example, you, you outgrow office space, but you don't move because you can't afford to. I think at one point we were sharing a single bathroom among like something like a 40 or 50 employee office. It, it was tough. It, <laughs> it had its grittier moments. Um, and obviously resources are, are rigorously prioritized um, and it forces creativity, but there's also, there's an emotional toll to it to a certain extent or a certain extent. So I would just say, I'm, I'm really, really grateful that I got to have that experience firsthand. I think, especially because at Volition Capital, the firm where I am at now, we exclusively invest in bootstrapped and capital efficient businesses. And I feel like I have a deeper level of empathy and ability to connect with and frankly reverence for what those entrepreneurs are accomplishing and the tremendous amount of cultural buy-in that's required to really grow a high-performing team through those lean years as a, um, as a bootstrap business. So those would be some of my kind of high-level takeaways from, from my L2 years. I think this is amazing. And a lot that you unpacked here, you spoke about thinking through product hacks when you're looking at building a product-led growth business. You, you spoke about being a bootstrap business um, and trying to find your way with that rapid growth because bootstrap businesses may tend to have a slightly slower growth. Like capital just is the accelerator, as we say, when you're talking about the VC world anyways. Um, some really interesting insights there. And somehow I'm able to resonate a lot more as well. Like I've been an operator in, in my past life before I also was an investor. Um, and I'm back in the product role actually right now as an operator again. And while my product is very, at this point, enterprise heavy, um, we still keep looking for nudges and hacks for, if not product-led growth necessarily on the sales side, on the adoption side, how else we can you know, push and nudge the user to start adopting the product more and looking at some those kind of growth hacks and uh, what, what you say resonates a lot. So I think thank you for sharing uh, all of those because I'm sure they're going to be valuable lessons. Um, and you started talking about it towards the end, but you transitioned from an operator to an investor role and how that has been extremely helpful to you. I personally fundamentally also believe that operators make better investors, my personal take. And we've, we've seen all kinds of um, experiences in the industry to prove, disprove, um, but that's just how I think about it. But would love to deep dive a little bit more on that. Um, after your time at L2, you in fact chose to do an MBA. You were at HPS for a couple of years, and that's how you probably switched to an investor role. Um, curious if you can walk, walk us through 
what that thought process was and some of your biggest learnings as an investor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So a big part of my job at L2 was to craft digital strategies for legacy consumer brands. And in large part, those digital strategies were in response to the fact that these brands were being increasingly disrupted by digitally native challenger brands. Um, At the time, I was actually increasingly spending a lot of my time specifically in the beauty category. And there were some really fascinating brands that were on the come up at that point in time. And they were taking just these huge bites of market share um, out of the industry. And in many cases, they were ultimately getting acquired by legacy portfolios for these really eye-popping sums. And, you know, my job was to be more focused on the legacy consumer brand perspective, but I was, I could tell that just my passion and, and where my interests lie were increasingly in how those brands were coming to be and how were they funding their growth and what did the consumer investing ecosystem around this space looks like. Um, so, you know, I was very interested in, in deep diving that passion and in addition to being interested in the the brands themselves and these disruptors, I was also finding that the internet platforms themselves that were fueling the growth and kind of acting as a launch pad for a lot of these brands were also really fascinating as well. And most brands had kind of carved out very specific platform expertise on one or two or a handful of platforms that I think were really kind of supercharging them to a certain extent. So Um, You know, just a couple of examples that come to mind. Um, There were makeup artists that were suddenly becoming these global celebrities thanks to YouTube and the nimbleness with which they were operating on YouTube and kind of building their their global presence and, and ultimately, in many cases, starting their own brands or brands that were specifically tapping into the micro influencer community on Instagram. This was before micro influencers or influencers at all were really a thing. They were seeing some of the tailwinds around Instagram and and the ability of of these individuals to be influencing purchase. Um, and, and again, I thought that was really fascinating. Um, there were other examples of brands that were finding new growth and distribution channels on a platform like Amazon. That you know, Amazon had really been historically very shunned by the luxury beauty community. It wasn't considered brand safe. It wasn't considered an appropriate distribution platform for for a luxury beauty brand. Um, And you had some of these breakout brands that were just choosing to think about distribution differently and choosing to see the enormous opportunity in e-commerce and, you know, what better platform to be distributing your brand and kind of growing consumer mind share and market share than on something like an Amazon, which was obviously so incredibly high growth. So, you know, I think I, I was both really interested in the digitally native brands, but I was also really interested in the consumer internet platforms that were allowing these brands to grow because of the way that they were, you know, on a continual basis, just really reshaping consumer behaviors around product discovery and commerce. So ultimately, I, I really went back as uh, to my do my MBA as a way to explore those passions. Um, and actually, I should also mention that the founder of L2, uh, Scott Galloway, he was a business school professor himself, and his co-founder, Maureen Mullen, they actually met at NYU's Stern School of Business, and L2 was actually effectively born out of a business school project. So I had seen firsthand the the type of entrepreneurial success that can come out of the MBA ecosystem, and I was greatly inspired by both of those co-founders. Um, and that was obviously, I'd say, another another influential factor in sort of my decision to go back to do my MBA, ultimately with the goal of looking to pivot into some sort of a consumer investing role. That's amazing. I think the mentors along the way who knowingly and knowingly end up shaping our our decisions and the way we think of things and perspectives is um, plays a big role as well. So just, yeah, I think 
just know the people you're around and maybe be a little bit more conscious about it i feel um i think love this love this uh, diverge uh, like discussion about how you moved into investing and you chose volition capital um would love to hear more about volition particularly and why did you choose this fund and what have been some of your favorite investments if you were to pick some yeah absolutely um so with volition you know my background was obviously consumer i was certainly looking for a firm that had deep expertise in the consumer world but I would say I wanted a firm that also had a strong internet angle to it and wasn't narrowly defining consumer as only being consumer products. Um, so, you know, Volition actually at the time that I joined, they were just starting to dip their toes into the world of consumer investing, but they had some very notable successes. Um, obviously, I would say the, the most notable was they were the first investors in Chewy.com in the pet care e-commerce space. That was a huge ultimate exit um, to PetSmart. And it really gave me the confidence that they shared my perspective. Um, they had obvious expertise around consumer, but also around e-commerce and sort of the broader power of internet platforms um, to be very disruptive and, and you know, just great investment targets. So um, I, I saw them as being very aligned with what I was looking to do. I would say also from a timing perspective, I was really fortunate to join the firm when they were actually just starting to formally solidify what's now Volition's internet and consumer practice, which is a separate team from the firm's historic roots, which have been historically more focused around enterprise SaaS. So it was sort of this really interesting point in time. It almost felt like I was joining this high growth startup within an established firm. Internet and consumer was an entirely new practice to the firm. And given my operating background, um, to your point, as having come from a startup environment, I definitely found the opportunity to be a part of that growth story really exciting and attractive. And I, I felt like I was going to have the opportunity to start to shape the culture of what that internet and consumer practice looked like. Um, so all of that just felt like uh, it was just very aligned with what I was looking for at the time. Um, I think the other thing I should certainly mention that was very influential to my decision to join is I, I sh you know, I, I would be remiss not to mention that Volition was willing to take me on as someone who really didn't have a traditional finance or investing background whatsoever. And I think particularly as you start to get into slightly later investment stages, um, Volition, we think of ourselves as being more sort of growth equity focused as opposed to earlier stage VC. I think the ability to take on someone who didn't necessarily have traditional um, investing background, that's very, very unique. And I think it signaled to me a lot about the fact that Volition really focuses on finding people with diverse perspectives and creative ways of thinking about businesses and looking at business models and being really willing to teach and mentor the, the hard skills that are ultimately going to complement that as it relates to your investor toolkit. So the fact that they were willing to take a chance on me um, you know, they obviously had a very mentorship led culture. Again, I just I thought that was so unique and so differentiated and said so much about the culture of the firm that I would ultimately join. And that was, you know, it was very much a culture that I was be I was interested in um, being a part of. I, I think the last part of your question was around favorite investments or, or projects that I've worked on. It's obvious, it's so hard to pick a favorite investment. Uh, I, I've been so fortunate to be involved on the board. Um, as a board member, a board observer of, um, uh, and you know, a number of companies at this point, but I would say probably one of the the best things about being at Volition is that you do have the opportunity to be very thematically driven, and a lot of the portfolio companies that I've ultimately gotten involved on during my time here have been born out of um, thematic explorations or um, deep dives that I've that I've had the chance to work on with analysts and associates over the years. So 
Um, I've been able to really pursue passion areas around categories like digital health and sustainability, um, mental health, uh, telecommunications, and, and how the, that's being disrupted. And I think there are a lot of portfolio companies that sort of foot to some of those core passion areas of mine um, that I'm obviously very, very grateful to have gotten to, to be a part of and continue to be a part of. That's very interesting. Thanks for sharing that. I think um, the the conscious call of which fund to join and where your strengths match with what the fund is looking at was uh, very interesting. Also, as you said, the timing is critical. Um, I think that one's very hard to pinpoint on and almost like decide for or work towards. It's literally like um, if the fund is at a stage where they're trying to join or add some additional themes to what where they've been investing in, you just need to probably be at the right place at the right time and um, see if that there's a fit. Um, there's a little less on how you can maneuver that actively. But yeah, I mean, it's worthwhile keeping an active eye out and going through the process as like a dating process, as they say, right? Like just spend time, see if there's a real fit, not just one way, whether the fund sees you as a fit, but whether you see the fund a fit for you as well. So yeah, I think thanks for sharing all of those insights. Very helpful. Um, shifting gears a little bit, um, would love to hear some of your observations around the gender representation while navigating this VC industry. Um, what do you think is being done well or can be done better? Yeah, I think, you know, one thing that came to mind um, with that is I think the path to upwards mobility or, or promotion, whatever you want to call it in this industry, I think is quite distinctly nonlinear. Um, it, you know, it can be very related to your investing track record. It's a track record that can take a lot of time to build up. Um, you know, you obviously have a certain degree of control around how your investments perform, but um, there are going to be things that are outside of your span of control. And again, it, it's it's nonlinear. You might have an, a, an investment that's performing really well one day and then the market conditions might change and, and suddenly um, that's less of something that you're proud of on your track record or an underperforming investment that ultimately gets really turned around. Um, so I think, you know, internally, as I think about career advancement and upward mobility for any investor, um, but I think in particular for female investors, I think navigating that sort of nonlinear journey can feel very challenging. And I think in some instances can feel um, emotionally challenging in the sense that you are constantly needing to really advocate for yourself um, and sort of position yourself in a way that where your accomplishments may not be as clear cut as they are in other industries, you can't always sort of point to the same, um, you know, concrete set of accomplishments or metrics uh, on an annual basis that you might be able to in other industries. So I think for women that that active self advocacy can be challenging. Um, and I think it does require strong mentors around you who in some instances, they may be the ones advocating for you. In other instances, they may be just doing some of that mentorship in terms of teaching you how to be positioning yourself and how to be thinking about that next step in your career. Um, and so I think I, it's very important and necessary for, for women to really surround themselves with those mentors. And I think we're at a point in the industry where just to be perfectly blunt, I think there aren't oftentimes enough women in senior positions at firms um, to be those mentors for other women. Um, so I think, you know, developing those important mentorship relationships um, with all genders at any firm is obviously going to be really, really important. Um, and I, it's all, it's my hope that that dynamic continues to shift and change because I think having women in senior leadership positions and partnership positions 
um, you know, at a firm is is obviously going to be really important in terms of greasing the path and and providing that upward track for other women who are joining earlier in their career and and looking for advancement. Definitely, I think uh, that's that's very well put. And like you said, uh, surrounding yourself with the right mentors and making sure that you're asking the right questions and trying to get answers for yourself at the right time. So yeah, that's that's totally fair. The meta point that you brought up. Uh, right now is also interesting that in general women have women tend to be more conscious about self-advocacy maybe and in an industry where that's a lot more pronounced where like you said I agree that there aren't like KPIs or you don't have OKRs which directly relate to showing your performance it's primarily on how many deals you've done and how they're doing which can be very fluid and something today and something very different tomorrow Um, it gets it probably gets harder and uh, becomes more evident that you need to self-advocate for yourself. Mm. Um, that's that's a very fair point and fair input. So thanks for that. Um, amazing conversation overall, Claude. Would love to end it with uh, listening from you on what advice would you have for some of our expiring female investor listeners here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think probably the the piece of advice that I feel most qualified to speak to is actually more related around how to break into the industry. And I, I feel so fortunate that I was able, I know I spoke to this earlier, but to be able to transition into the industry at this point in my career post MBA without having gone through some of the more traditional finance channels or um, early stage investing channels that I think a lot of people go through in order to end up um, where I am today. The advice that I would give, and I think this is particularly relevant to aspiring female investors is not to sell yourself short and assume that because you don't come from a traditional path that you're not going to be able to enter this industry. And I think women in particular are potentially more likely to believe themselves to be underqualified, to not have that level of self-advocacy, to assume that because their resume or their background doesn't look the same as everyone else at the firm, that there's never going to be an opportunity for them to break in. And I hope that my story and my path is potentially inspiring to others. just that it's never too late. And I think that more diverse backgrounds, whether that's coming from a startup, being in an operator role, developing very strong secular expertise around a particular industry. And, you know, in my case, it was disruptive digital strategies and how that applied to consumer. And in my case, beauty, Um, that was really experience that was ultimately valued. And when I was able to sort of position and elevate it and package it up in the right way um, and position it to the right firm. And again, I'm very grateful that Volition um, sort of had the foresight and and the open-mindedness to, to see that as very accretive to what was already happening at the firm. Um, you know, I, that ultimately just ended up being a, a great fit. And as you said, kind of with the dating analogy, it was sort of a fit on both sides. So um, I think, again, just for any investor, but for, for female investors in particular, to not undervalue the expertise and experience that they're bringing to the table, regardless of whether that looks like a traditional path to investing or not. Um, I think there's always an opportunity for more diverse viewpoints and um, perspectives in in this role. I think that's an amazing point and note to end the conversation for, because one of the big things we want to bring more through this these conversations is to show that there is diversity in the whole uh, VC ecosystem. And especially when you're trying to break in, enter in, there isn't actually a straightforward path that you're expected to follow. Uh, there's been one as a standard one for years now, but that's very quickly starting to move and, and um, get changed. And yeah, so to your point, just if you know your skill sets and you know you can add value, just go at it and 
uh, be fearless about it for that matter. But yeah, I think this was amazing. Thanks again, Claude. This was a great conversation. I'm sure our listeners would really value it. Wonderful. Thank you so much again for having me. It was a pleasure.